to another episode of the Just a Couple Dudes podcast. I'm your co-host, Eric Flatiger. And I'm your other co-host, Anthony Michael Cole. And uh, missing with us today is Frank Lewandowski Third. Yeah. Yeah. And so today we have a really cool guest, uh, Dr. Bickman. It's Benjamin Bickman. And so he is a scientist and professor, endlessly fascinated by the scope of disorders caused by insulin resistance and what to do about it, and also covering uh, chronic illness metabolic fat and stuff like that does that sound pretty accurate there dr bickman oh you, you nailed it eric i wouldn't change a thing okay awesome yeah. i did kind of have uh, a leading question it, it does have a lot to do i think with what with the world you're in so when we're just talking about like health insulin diet nutrition all that so people always talk about you know you should eat a well-balanced diet a diet that includes protein fat carbs grain sugar fiber you know what are your thoughts about this very generalized statement and what would you think, you know, is kind of a more of a balance that we should have? I think that sort of diplomatic advice to sort of like we're all holding hands and, and eating all these, you know, enjoy all the foods. Just be careful with what you eat. I mean, you know, don't eat too much. Um, that's the advice we've been giving for, you know, 60 years, um, really, in, in, you know, in, in broad terms and then more specifically 40, uh, about 45 years almost with very specific terms with the food guide pyramid. And uh, it's clearly not worked. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so this idea of anything can be part of a healthy diet. I mean, I agree with that in principle. I really do. I mean, I, I think that you can certainly indulge in some sweet junk food from, but, but it's really this important catchphrase at the end, which is from time to time which, which just doesn't happen in practice. So I, I agree with that um, in, a, in a kind of purely academic sort of way. Yeah, any, anything can be part of a healthy diet, sure. But we just don't see that in practice. Now, I, I do kind of resent as a scientist people speaking about um, uh, equating all three of these macronutrients, carbohydrates, proteins, and, and fats, as if they are equal. They are not there is clearly a redheaded stepchild among the three of them. And I say that as actually a redheaded stepchild. You can't tell them I'm a redhead anymore. <laughs> so I, I, I can use that term. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm allowed to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 So carbohydrates are not essential. Uh, even the most dogmatic dietitian has to, if only, if even reluctantly admit, carbohydrates are not essential. Now, I'm not saying don't enjoy them. And that they 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 that they can't be part of a healthy diet. They certainly can be, but they are not essential. So it should not be mentioned with the same sort of respect that we ought to be um, affording proteins and fats, because there are such things as essential fats. There are such things as essential amino acids from the proteins that we eat. Those should be the building block, the two foundations of what I consider a healthy diet. To kind of answer the second part of your question. It should be built on proteins and fats. And then carbohydrates can just sort of be sprinkled in. And then, of course, the more natural, the better. Although you could say that about all those foods. Natural fats, eat them. Natural proteins, eat them. But yeah. mind you, try to, get, try to get protein from a pea in nature. That, good, luck, good luck doing that. And then if it's a natural carbohydrate, you know, like a fruit or a vegetable, you know, eat it. You know, just the more processed it gets, uh, the more you want to avoid it. Yeah, that's that's great, man. I like that. Yeah, I was going to ask. So like to our listeners out there that have not a lot of exposure to diet or nutrition, you know, they are from what they understand. They're like, wow, everything I read says that, you know, 65% of my diet should be carbohydrates, yes. you know. Uh, so if you could, could you actually go into why that is not necessary? Why this, you know, this dogma, this belief that you that is supposed to be the majority of your diet, um, why you can still, you know, benefit by not having 65% of your meals be carbs. Yeah, yeah. In fact, not, not only why you can benefit, but in fact, I, I think why uh, that the fact that people just do benefit. Uh, there was a study published at the end of last year finding that 88% of all adults in the United States are metabolically unhealthy. And they based this on, uh, on a survey of adults across the country finding that they had uh, at least 88% of adults had at least one of the aspects. Oh, you know what? Constantly I think we lost you for a second. You know, uh, you said 
Go back for about the past 10 seconds. Repeat what you said. We lost you. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Um, the idea that carbohydrates should be the bulk of your diet is something that I think is problematic just given the overall metabolic health of the average American adult. At the end of last year, mm -hmm. uh, a study was published finding that 88% of adults were considered metabolically unhealthy or unfit because they had one of the five aspects of the metabolic syndrome. So, you know, very briefly, those five things are they have too much fat right around their waist, they have high blood pressure, they have high glucose, mm -hmm. and then they have high triglycerides or low HDL. It's those five things. So if someone has one of those five, well, 88% of us have one, at least one of those five. Many, of course, have multiple, if not all of them. Interestingly, the, the, the metabolic syndrome used to be called the insulin resistance syndrome. And that's because all of those aspects of the metabolic syndrome and so many more, frankly, and we can get into that later, so many more aspects of health really are, are dependent on the body being insulin sensitive. So the hormone insulin working well and being in a healthy level, if, it, if insulin isn't working the right way and there's more of it around the body, um, that is insulin resistance and then metabolic mayhem and disease will follow. So to, to bring this around and make, make my point and answer your question, telling someone with insulin resistance to eat the bulk of their calories from carbohydrates is asinine. It, it, yeah. is, it, is making them, it is making them fatter and sicker because one of the features of insulin resistance is a glucose intolerance. So the person, so if we imagine two people, one person, person A is insulin sensitive, person B is insulin resistant, and we had them both eat a bagel. You know, they're both eating 50 grams of essentially pure glucose. The person who's insulin sensitive, they'll have their glucose spike up and down and it'll be back down to normal in, in two hours. And insulin will follow a pretty similar trend. And just to make, you know, and, and just to remind the audience what insulin does, one of insulin's main jobs, but it does, it does countless, but one of its jobs is to help keep blood glucose levels, blood sugar levels from going too high. Because mm. if blood sugar goes too high for too long, it, it can actually be lethal. It can, it can kill a person. Mm -hmm. So due to what it happens at the kidneys. So insulin helps try to push that glucose level back down to normal in the blood by pushing the glucose into the tissues of the bodies, like the, like of the body, like the muscle and the fat tissue, which by mass, you know, represents a pretty significant part of us. So the person with insulin sensitivity has a big bump up and down of glucose and insulin. Insulin comes up and then pushes the glucose down and insulin itself comes back down. A person who has insulin resistance is intolerant or less tolerant of that glucose. They eat that same load of glucose, and now their glucose and insulin not only go a lot higher, but they stay higher for four, four or five hours. That is, that is a terrible thing uh, mm -hmm. to tell a person to eat in that situation who's, who's kind of metabolically not, not burning that well. Not, they're not working that well. So uh, so much of my research as a scientist who studies metabolic health is looking at the consequences of chronically elevated insulin. And so the best thing is to do, we could do is follow a diet that helps keep insulin low. And that is intermittent fasting or a diet that focuses. but you got to eat some point. You can't fast all the time. So when yeah. you do break your fast mm -hmm. and you are eating, well then focus on the two macronutrients, namely protein and fat that have little to no effect on insulin. It nourishes the body it gives you everything you need, and yet it helps keep insulin low. That's a that's a pretty ideal way to do it. So uh, I've got kind of two things to talk about. One is uh, I'm actually a cardiovascular ICU nurse, mm -hmm. and it's crazy because you know we'll get patients and we'll put them on a diabetic diet because most of them are type two diabetic. Yeah. And um, yeah, yeah, like you said, of course. And it's crazy because the the trays that we put in front of these people that are diabetic is just loaded with carbs and sugars, and it's just crazy. And like I've literally heard. I've heard doctors, I've heard nurses even, uh, they're like, well, you know, just, you know, just treat it with insulin, you know? Yep. That's right. That's what they say. Cover it within, eat whatever you want, cover it with insulin. And it's like, yeah. And it's like, to me, I look at the diabetic tray and I'm like, this is, this doesn't seem like we're trying to withhold carbs hardly at all. Like it's crazy. No, no you know, no, it's, it's a wonderful yeah. way to keep customers coming in. Yeah. I see you. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, we actually had a guest on. His name was uh, Mike Gorman, and he was as heavy as 540 pounds at one point. And oh, he, he's, he's gone as low as 205, and he's actually on a ketogenic, uh, extremely low-carb diet, obviously. That's with 35 pounds of skin. The guy really is probably like yeah. 170. He yeah. lost yeah. a lot of weight. Yeah, no kidding. And he was actually in the hospital at one point. And so they told him, like, yeah, we'll give you the – and he was – this is when he had started keto. And actually, I think at the time, it was more of a paleo diet. And when he was in the hospital, they brought him the diabetic – um, the meal and he was looking at it and he was like this is like floated with carbs like I got like a blueberry muffin on here and they're like well it's oh it's God. actually half the carbs of our normal meal so that's why we consider it diabetic yeah oh, so yeah, yeah 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 well yeah, that, that's, refle- oh, yeah. that's ahead, reflective that's reflective of just how wrong our perspective is on on well type 2 diabetes but insulin resistance more now more fundamentally because type 2 diabetes of course as, as many of your listeners probably know is really a disease of insulin resistance. It's that in this person, you know, if if we imagine these two variables, we're looking at what's happening with insulin and glucose. And in the type two diabetic, they're they're progressively becoming more and more insulin resistant. And what that would look like then is that the insulin, you know, if you imagine two kind of bar graphs, the insulin bar is going higher and higher and higher. The body needs to be pumping out more and more and more of it because it's becoming so resistant to it but it is enough to keep the glucose normal. So that glucose bar isn't climbing. And that, that is insulin resistance. And then type two diabetes ensues when this person has become so insulin resistant that they cannot make enough, although they are making plenty, they are still making more insulin than normal, but now the glucose starts to climb. That is then when it uh, spills into this realm of type two diabetes. But what is so important in this far more accurate paradigm of type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance is that if we look at it through the lens of insulin, we not only detect it far earlier because we detect the problem when the insulin's climbing decades potentially before the glucose ever rises at all, but we also treat it better because then we're looking at the person thinking, you have a disease of too much insulin, how can I lower your insulin rather than if we look at it as a glucose disease and we say, oh, well, who cares if your insulin goes even higher? Eat, eat that blueberry muffin and just give yourself you know, 30 units of insulin and you're fine. No, when we look at it as an insulin disease, we think we don't want to bump that insulin up higher. How can we bring the insulin down? All right, let's just start cutting their carbohydrates because if they start eating less carbohydrates, the blood glucose will naturally come down. And then finally, the pancreas can say, oh, wait. We're not swimming in a sea of glucose. Well, now I can start producing less insulin. And now we've started truly solving the problem. Truly. I mean, like full reversal of type 2 diabetes. We published a case study last year in 11 women with type 2 diabetes in 90 days on a ketogenic diet. Their HbA1c, if I remember correctly, went from 8.9 to 5.6. They went from super diabetic to no longer Mm. diabetic. Wow, that is incredible. Yeah, because once you're once you're over six, isn't it, or is it? No, it's seven. I think it's after seven. That's when it's like, okay, you are not treating your you you are diabetic pretty much. Yeah, yeah. And then they would say, here's your insulin therapy. That they just give them insulin, and giving a type two diabetic insulin is like giving an alcoholic another glass of wine, hoping that'll solve the problem. Oh, well, yeah, I was that that was the other thing I was going to kind of ask if you could explain to our listeners. Okay, so why exactly is just giving someone in, insulin, you know, you know, it, why is this a bandaid that doesn't just actually heal something like, you know, people yeah. are like, well, if I'm treating my blood sugar level, what's wrong if I take extra insulin? Can you explain that? Yeah. And, and from that perspective, it, it's it would be valid if we're looking at it as I just got to treat the glucose. Well, then you don't care what's happening to the insulin. Mm-hmm. And that, that's part of the, we need that paradigm shift to go from a, a glucose centric um, view of the disease to an insulin centric view of the disease. And, and not only type 2 diabetes, but so many more. But, but nevertheless, um, when we look at it from an insulin perspective, then we say, all right, we don't want to put you on insulin therapy because you already are swimming in a sea of insulin. So we don't want to bump it even higher because. The moment you do, the moment you give a type 2 diabetic insulin, it is a guarantee two things are going to start happening among many terrible things. One, they're going to need progressively more insulin all the time as they Mm -hmm. continue to become resistant and more and more resistant to it. And then second, they're going to gain a lot of weight quickly. 
because insulin tells the body not to shift the topic too quickly. And, and, and I'll let you guys decide how quickly we get into it. But insulin dictates fuel use in the body. I just kind of put it out there. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. It's uh it's definitely crazy. And, and I, I did want to kind of go back. There are definitely some doctors that are like, you know, pretty strict about, Hey, don't be eating all that, you know, cause you're diabetic. Yeah. But uh, I did want to kind of play devil's advocate a little bit. Cause it is true that there are there, uh, there really are though some doctors and I've worked in Arkansas and in Arizona where it just seems like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Just treat, just treat the problem, just treat the sugar, you know? And, uh, I wanted to ask when it comes to elevated insulin levels, uh, listening to some of your Ted talks and all that stuff. And of course I've done research on my own. I know me and Eric, really all of our friends, we, we live a pretty ketogenic lifestyle. Uh, yeah. Or low carb, you know, yeah. uh, we definitely, um, we're not super, super strict on it, but uh, I know I have at times. And then uh, fasting, I've definitely done. Big time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, all of us have. Um, could you speak about uh, why this is healthier? Yes. Yeah. So, so much of chronic disease is derived from chronically elevated insulin levels. And, and so we mentioned type 2 diabetes and a heart disease uh, with, for example, hypertension, most uh, most instances of a primary hypertension where there isn't some like obvious something obviously wrong with like the structure of the blood vessel or some other sort of um, um, hormone disease, most instances of hypertension is is a result of insulin uh, insulin resistance, chronically elevated insulin. And that's important. I, I didn't mention yet that when I'm describing insulin, what what the person what you need to be thinking about is that insulin isn't working the right way. In, in all the cells, it's, it sort of varies. It depends on the cell, how responsive it is to insulin. But, but critically, so one, uh, it, insulin isn't working the same way it used to. And then two, it's chronic, insulin is elevated all the time. Uh, so this hyperinsulinemia. So uh, hypertension um, is, is driven largely by this elevated insulin, causing the kidneys to retain too much salt and water. Um, uh, Alzheimer's disease uh, is often referred to as type 3 diabetes which is, I think, uh, unfortunate. It should just be looked at as uh, a natural progression of type 2 diabetes, which itself is a natural progression of insulin resistance, of course. But you can detect insulin resistance in the brain. And some of the brain's glucose uptake, as the brain is a very, it's an energy hog, it has a high metabolic demand, some of its um, energy is going to always be coming from glucose. But there's an important caveat there, which is that there's another nutrient that can also feed the brain, um, which is ketones. But even still, insulin resistance drives brain pathologies. Fatty liver, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is intimately connected um, to to insulin resistance. And even even things like infertility. And I'll stop here just because the list would take too long to go through. But uh, erectile dysfunction is is referred to in in some lines of published evidence as one of the earliest symptoms of insulin resistance in men. And then another, the most common form of infertility in women is a disease called polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. And even that at its core is a disease of too much insulin and insulin altering hormone production from the ovaries, inhibiting or reducing the amount of estrogens coming out and increasing the androgens like testosterone. So disrupting her normal menstrual cycle. So so looking at health through the lens of insulin and type 2 diabetes through the lens of insulin enables, it is really a powerful perspective because not only can we detect problems with a little a higher degree of sensitivity, but it also changes how we treat it. You know, So rather than giving someone uh, uh, one specific drug for their diabetes, one specific drug for their hypertension, and one specific drug for their you know, erectile dysfunction or PCOS, we could say, hey, wait a minute, all of these disorders are actually um, branches coming off of one trunk. So rather than just be trimming the branches, knowing that no drug can ever cure a chronic disease ever, ever, ever. It's no drug. I mean, that is so important to know a drug can never cure a disease. It can only treat a symptom, whatever it may be, you're never curing it. And so if you can look at these disorders and say, and, 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 you know, I imagine a conversation with a patient where the physician is saying, all right, look, I can put you on a drug. And, and the rest of our visits for the rest of your life will be you coming in and simply getting a higher dose prescription for this drug over time as it becomes progressively less effective. Or we can 
acknowledge the fact that every one of these disease disorders, like the ones I just mentioned, are derivative of insulin resistance, and this is best addressed by lifestyle changes. Man, that, that, that is empowering, I would hope, to a patient, and the patient can make a very informed decision and say, you know what, I think I'm going to pick um, the blue pill. I think I'm going to go with um, addressing my lifestyle and, and taking care of all of these disorders in one go rather than three distinct medications with all of their consequences. Yeah. Cause I was going to, I was going to say you, you said it perfect and we've said it before too. I'm like, you don't have a drug deficiency, right? You don't have a statin mm -hmm. deficiency. You don't have a hypertension deficiency. You don't, we don't have these different drug things. We have other problems that we should address. And, and we, our healthcare system is you fix it with these drugs that they've made. Yeah. Well said. Yep. Yeah. I and then totally it's, agree. and it seems like the drugs are usually, you know, clinical trials and testing is done by the actual drug uh, company that sells the drugs too, right? That's how right. it seems like. Yeah. It well, that's certainly been a lot of the case with uh, statins, which, which you named, um, which many people are on. Of course, the moment a person has a whiff of high lipid levels, then the, the statins just seem to be the, the first step, which I think is unfortunate. I think it's one of the more overprescribed drugs. Um, but, but nevertheless, yeah, I, well said. No one has a drug deficiency. That, that's a smart way to put it. Yeah. The other thing that I was thinking about too is, you know, with today's lifestyle, everyone wants things now and they want it to be the easiest route possible. And so what is that? That's through medication, yep. you know, because it obviously takes energy and it takes effort and just determination to change your lifestyle, to change your eating patterns, to be working out more often. And I wish we had, I wish our healthcare workers were really, really advocating for that more. You yeah, know, and, and maybe totally they've just agree. given up and they realize, ah, oh, these people aren't going to help themselves. So this is the only way I can help them. Maybe that's it. But it, it's, it's really, really sad that it's not just out there. Like not everyone's talking about it. Every healthcare provider is as uh, passionate as you are. Well, yeah. And, and mind you, I do have the benefit um, at the risk of anyone, like any, you know, healthcare practitioner, I hate for a physician or, or a nurse like, um, like you to, to hear me and think, oh man, this Bickman is so smug. No, no, no. I get it. I mean, there's, I have the benefit of being in the, you know, the ivory tower of academia where I get paid to ask questions. Now I don't get paid that well. You know, that's not a very lucrative um, yeah. uh, career, but that's what a scientist does. A scientist asks questions. And so I can, I can, I have the freedom to sit here and ask myself a question and then find the answer to that question, you know, recruit my students in my lab we find answers to questions. And if no one else has answered a question, well, then we answer it. And if someone else has already answered it, well, then I find the answer and now we, we've learned. And then so I, I do have the benefit of being able to look at disease the way I do because I have the time and then and I get compensated for doing it. A physician or a healthcare practitioner does not get paid to ask questions. Now, I don't mean for that to sound derogatory. A healthcare practitioner gets paid to see patients. Yeah, it's just a different job. It is a different job. And I have nothing but empathy for this person. Not, not sympathy. It's not the word I'm using, but empathy for this person. Because if, if a physician was talking to someone with hypertension, that man or woman, that physician, knowing that hypertension is so commonly a result of insulin resistance, how, how should I expect them to just know that? Just because I know it. That's not fair. Every one of us only knows what we've been taught. And the fact is, overwhelmingly, medical school curriculum or, or any healthcare practitioner's curriculum, a cur these curricula do not cover nutrition. And it certainly wouldn't cover it in the what I would consider an objective and scientifically justified perspective. It would be, here's your few hours of nutrition, and it's going to be the food guide pyramid or the my plate, which is always high carb, and, and your saturated fat's the devil. So I mean, that's such, such a dogmatic, outdated approach, but it still, of course, is prevalent. Um, so, so I, I, I guess anyone who's listening to this, if it's a patient, well, then you can have that conversation with your physician and, and, and be understanding, uh, know that a, a physician or any healthcare practitioner, nurse, physician assistant, um, these people are only get, they, we only, we all only know what we've been, what we've learned, what we've been taught. And when your career is, when you are, when you are compensated to see patients, you simply don't have a lot of time or interest in going and scouring the literature um, to find answers to questions that you might not even be asking. 
Yeah. And that's, yeah. When you see a patient too, um, I assume if you're a provider and, you know, and you know, you have a medication that can help them immediately, don't you almost have a sense of like, well, you know, do I withhold this, you know, or, you know, or yeah. what do I tell them? Um, so what would, uh, so why has fat been so demonized and sugar, like people are like, yeah, sugar's bad for you, but you know, it's not cut in the same light as fat, right? Fat seems to be like people are terrified of fat. We want, we want zero fat, everything, right? So why, oh, well, yeah. do, you, do you, what's your thoughts on why it was demonized so much? You know, yeah, so- I have a question actually too, that might tie into this one. You might be able to answer both at the same time is, you know, people, especially people that are diabetic, maybe they've had a diabetic ketoacidosis episode where their, you know, their blood sugar was way too high. And then all of a sudden they're like, well, now Dr. Bickman is telling me that I should go into ketosis because it'll be healthier. But I know I was hospitalized when I went through DKA. Yeah. You know? Can yeah. you, is there any way that you can kind of distinguish, you know, talk Talk about how fats are not your enemy and, and, you know, you know, the other, you know, macros are not your enemy. Uh, and then also talk about that. Why the difference yeah. between ketoacidosis and, you know, ketosis, you know, yeah, when yeah. you're living a healthy lifestyle. Right. In fact, that's an easier question to answer. So let me start with that one. Right. Yes. So someone could hear ketones and ketones are a, a real buzzword. They will, they will trigger some people um, for better and for worse. So it's, it is so important to, to really have a clear context here. In the case of type 1 diabetes, if the type 1 diabetic is underdosing insulin or indeed has not even been diagnosed and isn't treated with insulin yet, they have so little insulin that the body, again, whether it is deliberate or not, and there are indeed del- instances of deliberate underdosing of insulin to stay thin, um, that's that's a disorder in a type 1 diabetic called diabulimia. So the type 1 diabetic learns that if they just skip their insulin injections, they can stay as skinny as they want and eat whatever they want. Mm-hmm. Now, now it's terrible. The consequences are disastrous. Namely, yeah. if insulin is too low for too long, two things happen that are profoundly unnatural. And that is the glucose levels shoot through the roof because the body can't clear that glucose quickly enough in the absence of insulin. And then in the absence of insulin, the body is in such a high rate of fat burning. The body is just, fat burning is is going like gangbusters in this person. And that ends up creating ketones. So ketones, to sort of flip that around and describe it backwards, ketones are product of high fat burning for a prolonged period of time. That is all a ketone is. So the body makes ketones when it's burning fat at a really high rate. And, And insulin dictates that rate. Insulin is what's putting the gas pedal or the brake on it. And when it comes to fat burning, insulin wants to block fat burning. So if insulin's low, fat burning is not inhibited. And it's, like I said, working in overdrive. So in the case of a type 1 diabetic who is untreated or underdosing, they can have ketones get so high that the ketones are naturally acidic. Many, many molecules in the body and the body are acidic. So I wouldn't want someone, someone to hear that and immediately have a fear of ketones. Many bodies are very, very, very mildly acidic and ketones are one of them. The body has very natural, healthy, robust ways to deal with that. But in diabetic ketoacidosis, the ketones are so high that pH is affected. The body is becoming acidic and that can kill them. Um, in, in, in addition to the hyperglycemia itself, um, potentially killing them. So, uh, that's a very, very dangerous situation. Now, in contrast, someone who's not a type one diabetic, has almost zero fear of ketoacidosis because they always have insulin. And even if, even if the three of us decided that we would go on a zero carbohydrate diet, we weren't going to eat a single gram of carbohydrates. We still would have glucose in our blood at normal levels because the liver can make all the glucose that we need. And that we would also have insulin always in the blood. And even that very small amount of insulin, just this little trickle is enough to keep fat burning from going too high and thus is enough to keep ketones from going too high. So the body in that state, we would say, is in ketosis. Now, there are instances like lactation. If a woman is lactating, you know, she's breastfeeding a little baby, she should be careful of a ketogenic diet because that combination of the ketogenic diet with her exaggerated state of, of fat mobilization or lipolysis, how she's mo- moving a lot of her own fat to get it up into her milk um, for the baby, 
uh, a lactating woman can get to ketoacidosis if she's adhering to a ketogenic diet. So that's one group that does need to be a little more careful. Mm. Nevertheless, for the, for the rest of us, we have no fear of ketoacidosis. We would simply enter a state of higher than normal ketones or higher than average. And the average person has nary a whiff of ketone. Their ketones are essentially zero. Um, not totally zero, but essentially. Those of us that are, have higher than normal ketones, higher than the average bear, we would be in ketosis. So as you indicated that terminology, that's the difference. Um, you know, the average person, if we look at it in the context of a flame, the average person has nothing, no flame burning whatsoever, or maybe their ketones are a little match. Those, a person that's in ketosis has a fireplace. It's a nice little fire. Ketoacidosis is when the whole house is burning down. So it really is orders of magnitude different um, to go from ketosis. You got to be 10 or 20 times higher ketones to get into ketoacidosis. And again, the, most of us can't get there. Gotcha. That, thank you for, for addressing that because okay. I know that yeah. some people would definitely be thinking that, you know, because to them, you know, ketones or ketos, uh, ketoacidosis to them might be a terrible word. Like I remember yeah. that my grandma went through that or, you know, whatever, yada, yeah. yada, yada. Uh, yeah. Eric, well, uh, what exactly? You asked a question too. What, what exactly? Oh, I was just wondering, you know, I, I feel like so many people, especially people not very familiar with keto and stuff like that, they either think it's just a pure fad or when I talk about fats not being bad, like I'll tell people sometimes when I eat them, like, yeah, I actually had, uh, I had four eggs with an avocado, uh, oh, in, yeah. in some stuff like that, or maybe, a, you know, a piece of sausage too. And they're like, oh, that's so much fat. That's so bad for you. It's going to clog your arteries. And I'm like, well, actually I think the sugar and the carbohydrates in a English muffin, you know, might be, yeah. might be a little worse for you. But why was, yeah. why, how was fat so demonized, you know? Yeah, so, so I, it's hard for me to, there is wonderful history looking at a book by Nina T. Schultz called The Big Fat Surprise. Anyone who's really, who really wants to dive into the history of this kind of war on fat should really read Nina's book. She has taken just exquisite effort to detail the history of this and the controversy behind it. So at the risk of sort of passing part of that question on to her, um, it, it, it was just bad policy based on bad science. Now, by bad science, I mean people relying too heavily on science that comes from just questionnaires. Like you ask people, what do you eat? And they just sort of scratch their head and answer this survey. And then you look at how healthy that same county or, or, or country or you know state or country is, depending on what level you're kind of getting, looking at, what kind of view you have. So naturally that has some problems. Um, it, the biggest being, well, I guess two, one, it's hard for people to accurately remember what they eat at any given moment. But two, there's also something called healthy user bias. And this has been really explained by others far better um, than, than I will right now. But um, people that are very aware of, like, let's say people think red meat is, is terrible and they should avoid it at all costs. Those are also people who are probably doing a lot of other decisions that they think are healthy. Like they're not smoking. They have very controlled amounts of alcohol consumption. They have better exercise habits, you know, whatever it is, they may have a higher um, education um, overall and live in a, a nicer area with, you know, less pollution or whatever. There are so many variables, confounding variables that, that, that cannot be controlled for in these big kind of survey based studies. So I, I believe that's much of the problem in the modern um, war on fat. Now, you mentioning how people sort of balk when they hear um, how much fat you eat in, in the diet, uh, I, I get the same response. And the way I typically phrase that um, um, or, or, or base, uh, sort of change that conversation or, or frame the conversation is – I will, I will sort of present this situation where I'll say, oh, all right, you, you're, you're concerned or you're surprised at the amount of fat I eat. Why? And they'll say, oh, well, you're going to die from heart or the risk of heart disease. You're going to get clogged arteries. I'll say, all right, that's, that, and that is much of the heart of the fear of saturated fat to this day. It is the, it is the fear that the, the saturated fat in our diet is causing clogged arteries, and so we need to eat monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats. But there are substantial lines of evidence that challenge that idea. So there was, for example, the Minnesota, a big experiment called the Minnesota Coronary Experiment found 
that the people eating the high levels of, of industrial seed oil, like soybean oil and margarine, and that's, that's a polyunsaturated fat, that's an omega-6 polyunsaturated mm -hmm. fat, they died more, including from heart disease, than the people eating saturated fat. Uh, and, and other studies have shown that uh, more than that, the Sydney Heart Study had similar findings. People that were asked to eat less saturated fat and eat more of these industrial or artificial seed oils also had a higher mortality. And uh, people often vilify saturated fat because of their fear of LDL cholesterol. But that's not really fair because if you look at the longest lived people, one of the most common traits, and there are multiple longitudinal aging studies that have found this, the longest lived people have the highest cholesterol levels, including LDL. And the people with the lowest LDL have significantly higher mortality. Their cancer mortality goes up substantially. Their risk of dying from severe infections goes up because LDL cholesterol actually um, is, some people say that it should be part of the immune system because it, can, it will physically bind to bacteria and then take the bacteria to the liver to be dumped into the, into the intestines, to just be eliminated from the body. So LDL cholesterol, far from being a villain, I think is actually one of the unsung heroes um, in the body. And so for me, if someone says, well, you got to eat less saturated fat to keep your LDL down, my response is, why would I want to do that? I want to keep my LDL up so I can be strong and healthy. But just to finish this This actually thought, is crazy. I was going to say, just because as a healthcare worker, I've never heard any good things about LDL. No. No, that's so unfortunate. It really and I is. mean, like, and even just, and I say as a healthcare worker, and then even as just like a, you know, a, an American, I've just never heard any benefits of LDL. I've like heard HDL is cool, you know, cholesterol yeah. and fats are important, but I've never heard the benefits of LDL. Oh man, it really is. Well then good. I'm glad. I mean, hopefully the listeners can be nodding their heads to this too and, and learning something. LDL is extraordinarily mm -hmm. relevant and the data are very clear. This is far from being an enemy. Now, I, I will say that looking at LDL requires a little bit of nuance, but if you're, but actually that's not even fair to say. If someone wants to look at their lipids and try to get an understanding of what their blood lipids, if they have a blood, you know, they go in for their annual checkup, they've got their blood panel, they're looking at their lipids, uh, what they put the LDL on the shelf. Who cares about that? Look at your triglyceride to HDL cholesterol ratio. So put the triglycerides up on the top in the numerator, put the um, HDL cholesterol on the bottom, and you want that ratio, that, that um, dividend, that, that divided number to be less than 1.5. If the triglyceride to HDL ratio is less than 1.5, then they are sitting pretty. And it also probably means they're quite insulin sensitive. That also ends up being a surrogate marker for insulin sensitivity. But if the triglyceride to HDL ratio is above 1.5, then it's time to make a change. And I will just say the moment someone cuts, starts cutting carbs, which is not fat, I know, I, I get it. The moment they start cutting carbs, triglycerides plummet. I mean, I've seen a guy go from triglycerides in the 400s down to about 50 in just a couple weeks. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, I think it was, uh, I was listening to Dr. Sean Baker um, mm -hmm. talking about, he put out some articles, some uh, some really good information about LDL and cholesterol and actually higher levels of people um being more receptive to uh, cancer or like, you know, dealing with cancer and sicknesses and other like flus and stuff like you're actually your body's more resilient and uh, able to fight off things like that. And, uh, different well, it's sicknesses. true, especially with blood based cancers. There is a published report. And, and again, these are these are epidemiological studies themselves. We were just sort of doing surveys and looking at people. You're not actually intervening. But people with the lowest LDL levels have a significantly you know, several times multiples higher risk of mortality from blood-based cancers like leukemias and lymphomas. Yeah. And um, so kind of circle back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier and intermittent fasting and stuff. Um, and just while we're talking about diet and what to eat and everything, I know that one thing I like to do um, when I'm either just coming off an intermittent fast, if I feel good, is I like to do like a good protein shake. I get, I have a good you know, protein powder with some collagen, maybe some, some other things I like to mix in there kind of as a meal replacement. But, um, yeah. I know that, so you have, um, you're working with meal replacement shake and thing, and you also have a book that I wanted to bring up too. Yeah. Th well, thank you. Uh, yeah. I appreciate that opportunity. So yeah, I, I, how you end a fast is perhaps the single most important variable of a fast. 
And one of the things that makes me a little wary of, of, of how popular fasting has become is that I fear, which I think is justified. It, it is popular and it ought to be. And anyone who's curious about it should really look up the work of Jason Fung, who I really consider him kind of the godfather of the modern fasting movement. But nevertheless, one of my fears when it comes to fasting is that someone just uses it as sort of a binge purge cycle where they fast and they eat one meal a day, but that one meal, those, that kind of four hours of eating, if they're doing like a 20 to four ratio of fasting to eating, ends up just being loaded with junk food. You don't want to end a fast by spiking your insulin in, mm. uh, too high. And, and I say that because so much of the benefit of a fast is that insulin, as you've stopped eating, starts to come down slowly, slowly, slowly. And that is a beautiful thing because once insulin comes down, the body can shift fuel use and, and go from sugar burning, which is what it does when insulin is elevated, and then it can go to fat burning. And the, to be able to sh shift um, into fat burning with a fast is the hallmark of what's called metabolic flexibility. When you can shift between those two fuels, you eat a starchy, sugary meal, you go to sugar burning mode, and a few hours later, you go back to fat burning mode. That is metabolic flexibility. Someone who's metabolically inflexible, which of course is derivative from insulin resistance, that they, they stay in this sort of sick state of sugar burning. This, uh, so when they start to fast, they don't shift over to fat burning, but they can, I mean, not immediately, it takes them longer. So, so give the body that time, let insulin come down, shift to fat burning mode, work some of that metabolic flexibility out, and then, and then end that fast with a meal that is doing two things. One, it's focusing on what you need, which is proteins and fats, and it is helping keep insulin low. And so the, the shake, the, the meal replacement shake, um, is if anyone who's curious, please go to uh, Get Health, and that is health spelled H-L-T-H, gethealth.com. You can learn more about it there. But it's really built on this foundation of a one-to-one -one by mass of protein and fat. And you mentioning protein is appropriate. That's an awesome way to finish a fast. What is so, I think, unappreciated is that and this is studied. We, there's data to, to look at this in humans. If you mix um, a one-to-one -one of protein and fat, it works better for, for protein synthesis in the muscles in the body than just that amount of protein alone. So if oh, someone's just thinking, I'm just going to eat the protein mm -hmm. shake. Oh, it's a really cool study. Um, and they used eggs actually as the model, egg whites versus whole egg. And, mm -hmm. and I consider a whole egg one of one of god's most perfectly packaged foods where i love it, eggs it has this perfect macronutrient mix and so whenever i talk mm -hmm. to a vegetarian i'm always a little worried for their health but if they eat eggs you know if they're a lacto ovo or ovo vegetarian whatever the classification is there <laughs> yeah, then, right. then i can sort of be a little more relieved and say all right well then you're you're going to live a little longer you're not going to be quite as nutritionally deficient <laughs> Um, as you would be otherwise. Just eggs are just so nutritious. It's true. That's, I actually know a vegetarian who uh, she only eats eggs and she looks really healthy. I will mm -hmm. say that because she does like, I agree with you that eggs, eggs are, are just, amazing. and I've had so many people that are like, Oh, you ate four, you ate five eggs, you know? And I'm like, dude, I worked out twice. I did a cardio workout and then, you know, in the morning and then I did a crazy lifting workout. Like I yeah. need my protein in. And like you said too, uh, so I have a minor in chemistry. And one thing I've learned throughout chemistry, like whether it's breaking down uh, other atom or other molecules and stuff like that, it like likes things that are like them, you oh, know, yeah, and yeah. pro, you know, protein has these long chains, you know, they're big amino chains, you know? Yeah. And like attracts like, that's what you're it, saying there. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And so you need those fats, you know, you can't to help even break down, you know, some of those protein and really, like you said, you know, get them into your muscles and getting your cells so you're properly digesting them and, and getting your, your body, uh, functioning at the, the level it should be. You know, yep, people that are right. just going pure protein, like, no, you're really, really cutting yourself short. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And so th that's, we, that's, so the, the health shake uh, with, and the, 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 the health shake is called complete meal. Um, but it's, so it's built on those, th that ratio. Uh, and, and it's meant to have enough calories to just sort of keep you going. But um, real food is always optimal, of course. But one of the problems, if any listeners are sort of becoming low carb curious it, it does require planning. I mean, there, it is hard to eat Big convenient time. 
foods, low carb. And that was really the impetus um, uh, for, for creating the shake. It was just sensing me, me looking at what we'd done um, even in our case study and, and seeing um, the need for just easy solutions. But look, I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. If they have the time and the means and the knowledge to, to create good meals, do it. Absolutely. This Big time. Yeah. A convenient alternative. Yeah. And I know that that's kind of what I do. It's, it's mainly, you know, if, like I said, if I'm coming off a of fast or if I do know that like, you know, I only got like 30 minutes right now, I don't want to spend most of it just cooking. I'll make this big, you know, in, intense shake and then I'll be on my way cause I'm going somewhere else. And so, but I do think that that's really good. Cause I think those meal replacement shakes are, they're just amazing for a lot of people and they help people kind of bridge that gap between making that transition in their diet too. I think. Yeah, um, I think so too. And, and my, I'll, I'll confess though, I've found across the population, there's just sort of a spectrum of of people that love or hate supplements. I just love supplements. There's just something yeah. I just enjoy. <laughs> I enjoy getting like a little handful of my, you know, my supplements in the morning and then making up a shake. I, I, yeah. just, I just kind of enjoy the routine of it. But I know some people who hate it. No, I me, get it. Me all, too. All kinds. I'm always looking for, you know, I like to try different stuff too. And I like hearing from other, from other people, from people who are deep in the weeds too with supplements and what they take. I think it's Dr. Rhonda Patrick. Um, when I heard her talk about fish oil, I was like, man, I got to get me some fish oil. Yeah. yeah. You know? And so, I mean, if you don't have to explain what you take, but are there some supplements that you, that you really do believe in that you take? Yeah, there are. In fact, um, I take a potassium iodide. In fact, it's, you mentioned omega-3, um, that prompted me, uh, that reminds me of, of a lot of my focus in nutrition is um, I see it through the lens of me being a husband and father because that mm -hmm. is that to me is number one in life. Nothing else I do will ever matter as much as, as what I am to my wife and my children. And so I think about their nutrition and the only two supplements I give my kids, and then I can elaborate with myself, I give them omega-3 and, and I give them potassium iodide. Just one teeny little drop mm. of this of this iodine um, source because these hungry little brains, they need an optimal production of thyroid hormone. And you cannot be making – and people could kind of roll their eyes and say, oh, thyroid. I don't mean to open up that because that's such a huge topic. But oh, yeah. suffice it to say, the brain has a high demand for thyroid hormone to help it work optimally. And the consequences of having deficient – um, thyroid are disastrous on the brain. Uh, it, mm -hmm. it really creates some incredible cognitive um, deficits, in, even in an adult who has a fully formed brain. But in a child whose brain is still forming, um, let alone a, a newborn, oh, the consequences are disastrous and potentially irreversible. So anyway, those are the two things I give my kids and myself. I also take a magnesium supplement um, mm. and uh, – Oh, what's the other one? I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but then I, I take a, another little powder that I also mix in. It tastes just as foul as the magnesium does. Um, but then I also yep. take vitamin um, vitamin D three and K two um, as a blend. Um, and then I take two. I take a depending on my workout for the day. I will take a little bit of. I make a little kind of workout kind of little shot, and and I put a little bit of yerba mate powder in there, and then. Um, Ooh, one that sounds two, hot. Yeah. <laughs> I like yeah. herba mante. <laughs> yeah. And then I put in one to two grams of leucine and oh, then okay. a, a few grams of, of creatine phosphate. Mm, okay. No, yeah, I did want to, you know, advocate also for uh, iodide out there too, is the medical community definitely recognizes that because, I mean, that's why all your table salts are iodized salt because they yep. realize – as a nation, as a, you know, worldwide, everyone is deficient in iodine. And it, like you said, it is so important. Now I will uh, say though, one, um, that's it. It's, it is so important that, you know, governing bodies have said, we got to put this in everywhere. Although governing bodies can get a lot wrong, but that was one thing they get right. Um, but as people are moving away from conventional iodized table salt into these kind of sexier salts where I just want, I just want mm -hmm. sea salt or, or whatever, and I'm yeah the rock salts, of, yeah yeah. And I'm an advocate of that, um, and I, I say that without any sort of commercial interest. I love the the Redmond real salt partly because it's right here in Utah, and I know the guys. Oh, um, nice. But I like all the trace minerals that you get from it, but it does make me think. All right, now because I'm getting this very natural salt that has not been altered at all, which I like, 
it does mean I need to then make sure I'm getting iodine. And I can either be eating a lot more seafood, which is difficult for me to feed my kids, or I just have this little dropper of potassium iodide, and it's literally one teeny little drop, and you're good to go. Um, so uh, it's uh, I think there's a benefit to these unconventional salts um, or more kind of gourmet type salts because of the trace minerals, but there is a concern that you might be losing something in the process, namely iodine. Nice. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, yeah, we talked about your shake now. So uh, yeah, why don't you tell us about your book? Like what is, what is it about? You know, why, why should we buy your book? Right. Yeah. Thanks for asking about it. It's it, that book. Um, mind you, it took years to write. It was such a surprisingly lengthy process. I was so naive about it all. Um, but it, was, it, it came to life after I got done teaching a series of, of lectures here at my university. So my university here at BYU, they have um, every summer they have this, they kind of throw open the campus for a whole week and allow um, faculty to create like a one week series on any, any of their ex topics of expertise. And on a whim about um, six or so years ago, I thought, well, I'm gonna do a series about insulin resistance and you know, sort of describing what it is, why it matters. So going through some of the main disorders like heart disease, Alzheimer's, infertility that come from insulin resistance, and then what to do about it. And it was I got so much interest in this pretty big lecture hall, like 500 seats. By, by the time I got to the end of the week, it was standing room only. And so many people were asking me, oh, where can I get your book? Where can I get your book? And I thought, well, one, I thought, this was an opportunity that I should have exploited long before now. Well, but yeah. it, also, it also made me realize this is a topic that people want to learn more about. And, and I could see the gap. There was no book out there about insulin resistance, at least not the way I was looking at it, which was really pivotal to health. So that's the book. Why We Get Sick is the name of it. And, and anyone who's listening, do me a favor, go buy it, um, help out a poor professor and learn a little in the process, but it's available anywhere um, for pre-order now, like Amazon or Barnes and Noble, but it's called Why We Get Sick. And again, it's basically three parts. What is insulin resistance and, and how do we get it? And then second, uh, why it matters. So all the chronic diseases, we kind of, I go through all those connections. And then the last part is sort of the happy ending to what's otherwise kind of a horror story. And that is that, look, if you think you have it, here's how you can get an idea whether you do. It is, it is very simple, not easy necessarily, because like you said, making lifestyle changes is not easy. Even if the idea of the change itself is simple, um, it's not easy, but, it, but I lay it out in as clear and simple a way as possible just to, with the hope that someone could read this and get a much firmer grasp or have much more control over their health. Yeah. And uh, just to advocate uh, for your book is I've, I've actually lived a lifestyle that your book advocates for. And uh, so previously, you know, I, I had gained a lot of weight. I, I stopped working out for like four or five years. And so naturally, uh, you know, I was just eating unhealthy. I think I put on like 40 pounds, something like that. Mm -hmm. Something ridiculous, you know. And then I decided I was like, you know what, enough is enough. And uh, it just seemed like with work and things, I was already kind of doing an intermittent fasting, uh, you know, lifestyle. And I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to be more strict about it. You know, I, instead of just eating something small, it's like, no, I really will go 16 hours and I won't, you know, I won't eat anything, you know. And then as I was, uh, and then I would do eight hours of eating. But then as I was doing that, you know, I started, you know, keep, uh, you know, the keto diet started really getting big. I saw friends that were losing over a hundred pounds you know, uh -huh. doing, doing the keto diet. And, uh, so then I kind of, uh, supplemented that lifestyle as well. And I'm not kidding you the amount of energy that I got, like it was crazy. So not only was my body looking better than it's ever looked in its entire life, you know, you know, I, and all through high school, I played sports and stuff like that. Um, but even then, now all of a sudden my body is looking better. I had more energy than I've ever had in my entire life. Uh, the amount of focus I had. Uh, and there's also something to just that mentality of like, you know what? I'm going to control the way I eat. You all of a sudden start getting a uh, – you gain a control over your whole life as well. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the last part I was going to say, you know, your title of your book is Why We Get Sick. I'm not kidding you. So that was about – 
that we're coming up on three years ago. I'm not kidding you. I've never been sick. Like I've never had to call in sick into work. Uh, like it's crazy. I'm, I'm, I just don't get sick. Yeah, and I'm and like, I go and I get labs. Before. Yeah. And I was gonna say, I'll get labs and my cholesterol's great, you know? And, and it's, so it's like, literally, this isn't just a guy that's trying to sell a book. It's like, no, he's, he's pre he's preaching truth right now. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is. Um, thanks. I appreciate that sort of testimonial, but it, it really matters. And, and my hope is that it just can change me talking about insulin resistance, any sort of YouTube talk or podcast. One of my great hopes um, professionally is that people, it can change, it can help that my, my perspective can help be part of the conversation, if even a small part, on changing the way um, we're looking at chronic disease in particular. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, like I was just looking up numbers right now, looking up, you know, obviously, number one, heart disease. Number six, it was like Alzheimer's. Number seven, it was diabetes. And you're like, you can't help but think that all of these are so interconnected and related to one yeah, another. That's, that's and exactly it's like, right. and like you said, you could, you can just treat the one thing and then the, then the other with drugs and all this different stuff, or you can find source because there's got to be a source, right? It's, that's it's right. even tied to like mental health. You know, if you have, if you're dealing with anxiety and depression and stuff, I think I heard Chris Kresser talk about this. You know, he's, he's had people come into, into his, um, his office and whatnot, who maybe were dealing with an anxiety or problem with depression. And really when they looked at, laid out their labs and laid out their diet and everything, saw they had a B12 deficiency and they weren't getting it, you know, and, and people who are getting off of, um, you know, antidepressants because they changed their diet. Yeah. And so oh, there yeah. is, there's a common source. And I think that your book is so cool because, you know, it looks like you've really found that insulin resistance is that could be that thing. Yeah, and even speaking of elaborating a little on, on uh, mental health, many of these, one of the common threads across many of these seemingly distinct orders, like depression, migraines, Alzheimer's, is that there is this phenomenon of glucose hypometabolism. And so in each of these instances, we have detected, um, not me literally, we, the scientific community, uh, have detected that the brain is not using a normal amount of glucose. And, and part of this is thought to be, in, in every instance, because of this um, if subtle or more than subtle insulin resistance. And, and there's, so there's two things that are relevant there. Improve the insulin sensitivity, but also try giving your brain the only other fuel that it can use. If your brain can't meet its energetic needs from glucose alone in that state, then give it some ketones because the brain will greedily use ketones and indeed, when someone's fasting and ketones go higher, you know, to around one to two millimolar, ketones end up becoming up to 75% of all the energy that the brain is using. So the brain loves ketones. The moment they come into the blood at a high enough level, they, the brain starts gobbling them up. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can I can speak about that because I felt it. You know, it's like as soon as I hit that like 24 hour mark that I've been fasting because I've done uh, three day fasts even and, uh, you know, and even before that. But I, I just feel like a surge of energy. And I'm like, I'm like, wow, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to go to bed tonight. <laughs> like literally, <laughs> that's how much energy I felt just from like what you just said, the ketones. Yeah. Um but I did want to say, you know, uh, here at Just a Couple Dudes, uh, we're really big about uh, just people living a more positive lifestyle and also men specifically just being better men. Uh, you know, we're kind of wrapping this episode up. Is there anything you want to say? You were talking about how one of the most important things for you is being a husband and a father. Is there anything that you would just like to end on that if you could give advice on or anything or anything, just last words, is there anything you would like to say? Yeah, yeah. What, what a, so what would be my, my sort of final moment, uh, final words? It, I guess it would be um, don't underestimate the value of having a healthy body in performing um, life's duties better. And, and so that might seem really obvious. So let me elaborate, um, just lest it seem just silly. I know for me as a father, um, I am a better father when I am in control of myself. If I can control my, like even something as simple as my appetite, I have really noticed if, if when I go home from work, I immediately start just eating and binging and I'm just stuffing myself full of whatever food we have around the house, I end up um, getting kind of cranky and more impatient with the kids. 
And I'm not, I don't like, I don't enjoy, I'm, I'm more reluctant to go out and play with them, go jump on the trampoline um, and do whatever they want me to do. I, if I can be in control of, of, of what is tempting me, uh, then I'm a better, I'm a better father. I'm a, and then certainly I'm a better husband because I, even in that case, I can help give my wife a break um, as she's home with the kids every day. So to those, to those dudes um, that are looking, that are evaluating their life and wondering how can I just do life better? I would say we are all of us um, a mix, uh, you know, our, our being at the risk of sounding a little cheesy, you know, we have a mind that is wanting to, to control this body. And we have a body that, that might not always want to do what, what our mind wants us to do as our mind is laying out priorities and long-term goals. The body and its natural passions might, might fight that. And so we've just, we've got to be in charge. We've got to just, we have got to control what we can control. And that is, thank heavens for many of us that don't have, um, you know, perhaps congenital diseases or something, we can control the health of our bodies and let that be just a small act uh, that, that you can do, that we all can do. And I would even say start tomorrow, change breakfast tomorrow. If, if your breakfast is normally a bunch of bagels or bowls of cereal or some other junk, focus, change it. Uh, eat, some, eat some scrambled eggs or fast and just have a cup of tea. Um, change breakfast tomorrow. That's great, man. I mean, and that's true. That's where we always, or I would tell anybody too, it's like, just start with a, something as simple as you can be, you know, whether that's breakfast, go for a 20 minute walk, mm-hmm. get outside, get a little bit of sun. Literally that small act can snowball. Um, yep, totally, yeah. So it. just uh, to say, um, where can, so just to re-put it in, uh, where can people find you, whether it's social media or anywhere else? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. So my involvement on social media is really just sharing <laughs> um, insights on human metabolism and I am active on all three of the main um, outlets. So on, on, on Facebook, they can find me at Dr. Bickman. And then on Twitter and Instagram, it's Ben Bickman, PhD. Um, but there aren't a lot of Bickmans in the world. That's B-I-K-M-A-N. And I'm the only Ben. So I'm pretty easy to find. Yeah. And you're selling your, your book on Amazon, right? Yeah. Anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes oh, & Noble. Yeah. It's all pre-order now and it'll be released in, in July. Awesome, man. Well, I'm definitely going to need a copy of that book and we're going to promote it as much as we possibly can because I think what you're doing is a, that's an incredible message and it's actually pretty bold um, because I just feel like the the message that you have and the, the science you're talking about, for some reason, it catches a lot of flack from people, from the yeah, masses. Yeah. You know, whether it's like not to just be go too hard on the vegan community, but whether it's the vegan plant-based community, whether it's like the people who are super pro carb, like it seems like guys who are doing what you're doing, they just get, I mean, there is a big community following you, but there's also a community just like pushing back big time. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, there are many, many people that think that animal foods are, are the, the root of all disease. And that is just, that is so silly on its face. If it were, we as a species would have never lasted this long because we became who we were because of animal, because of eating other animals. Yeah, and I actually it was it was very appalling. I actually heard a doctor who is a heart surgeon who is a, a very diehard vegan. He actually said uh, on this podcast, this is a little alarming. He said, "I've never opened up an artery or a heart and seen sugar in there. What I saw was fat." Oh my and I was so like, and I, I just, so and I, I couldn't wonder, believe I wonder it. If the good doctor, yeah, I wonder if the good doctor just fell asleep during biochemistry classes and didn't realize <laughs> that sugar, sugar's metallic, sugar's very readily converted into fat in the liver. In fact, yes. if you look at most, I mean, there are studies to find that you, can, if you put someone on a low carb diet, I know you guys were trying to wrap up, but you got me going, so I got to finish this. Yeah, <laughs> I know, oh, the man. gloves are coming off. <laughs> yeah, um, just when I was hanging up my coat, I'm not taking it back off. So, um, if if we look at uh, when we look at the a low carb diet, and you can have someone in a low carb context eating about, I think the diet was about three times more fat, more saturated fat than the than the low fat diet, and yet their actual saturated fat levels in the blood were about half. So they were significantly less, and that's because this good doctor failed to remember in biochemistry, much of the saturated fat in the blood is coming from what's called de novo lipogenesis. So the liver is being told to make fat from things like glucose or like what you get from sugar, glucose and fructose. Fructose is very readily converted into fat. 
And so that very naive, probably ill-intended um, Ill doctor, I can only assume he was trying to deceive people by saying something so silly. Um, but let's give him the benefit of the doubt. He's just um, naive um, yeah. or uninformed. Um, in that case, you can't say that I, I would say, I bet much of that fat came from the liver converting sugar into fat. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's gotta be it. I mean, you look at how much can, uh, on average, what the regular human consumes in the standard American diet, as far as sugar goes. And it's just, it's insane. Oh, it's insane. Yeah. Yeah. It's shocking. Yeah. And, cool. and I do encourage anyone to look up the work of John Yudkin, um, Y-U-D-K-I-N. He was an English biochemist. He's passed away now. And decades ago, he was detailing the evidence, looking at the connection between sugar and heart disease. Oh yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a reason why it's the number one, uh, number one killer in, in yep. our country at least. Um, so again, I just wanted to, I guess we'll wrap it up the second time, but I just want to thank you for coming on. I think this is awesome. Um, you're definitely a friend of the show and I'd love to actually do some more stuff with you if you're, if you're open to that. Oh, you bet. Yeah. Thanks guys. Thanks for the time. Um, and for the opportunity to discuss, um, everything metabolic health. Yeah. Let's do it again. Thanks again. Yeah. And I'm, I'm definitely going to get this all, you know, edited and published today. And I'll actually, I'll send it over to your email so you can have it. So, you know, if you do whatever you want with it, okay. Yeah, you no, can no, I'll share it up. Yeah. Any, any um, outlet, um, I'll share it through all my same outlets. I, I always like to do that. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, I love this conversation today. And I, I really hope that for the people that listen to this, you, you're able to take something away from this and make some, some life changes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Anthony here, and I just wanted to say, you know, thank you for coming on the show. And, you know, honestly, I feel like you have uh, the same vision that we do, or we just want people to benefit, you know, we want people to be better today than they were yesterday. And so uh, I'd like to say, man, we here at just a couple of dudes, we consider you one of the dudes. So we appreciate <laughs> it, man. Awesome. Thanks, guys. I appreciate the the honor here. Yeah, no problem. Okay. So uh everybody, this is uh you can find the Just a Couple Dudes podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean. You can find our Instagram at j.a.k.d underscore podcast and on Facebook, it's just Jacked Podcast. So uh thank you everybody for listening and we'll see you on the next one. All right, signing off. <laughs>